Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Liam just said to me, enjoy. So I'm going to do that. Is that okay? <laughs> Good morning. Well, I've got a bit, of, a bit more of a Welsh twinge this morning because I've spent the last couple of days down in Bridgensie. And uh, when I go down there and I speak to my mother, this is what happens. Um, but I'll kind of tone it down for you guys. But last week we prayed a dangerous prayer, didn't we? We prayed the prayer, Lord, let my heart be broken by the things that are breaking Yours And many of you stood up and prayed that prayer together. So just take a moment and turn to the person next to you and go, this is what God did as a result of that. And if not, pray the prayer again, okay? Lord, let, the, let, the, Lord, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Just turn to one another and chat for a minute, and I'll get myself sorted. So we're on uh, week two of our mini connecting series. Last week was about connecting with your neighbor. Uh, this week we're talk- thinking about connecting with the church. And next week we're going to be thinking about connecting with God. And next week, um, come if you've ever struggled in connecting with God. I mean, I don't mean believing in Jesus. I mean, connecting with God and having a personal relationship with Jesus. Then we're going to talk next week about shame and how that impacts our relationship with God. And that's going to be a great time together. So, so come next week. But we're thinking about the church of Jesus Christ uh, this morning, Jesus' bride. Now, I want you to put your thinking caps on for a minute. And I want you to think how many people, and don't shout out any answers, okay? No answers, okay? We'll give you the answers later, but no answers right now. How many people, how many Christians do you think are persecuted around the world right now? Okay? Now, by persecution, I mean that either the state regulates their church so they don't have freedom of worship, or some of the believers are in prison, or they don't have an opportunity to share their faith. Just have a think about what that number is and turn to the person next to you and share that number. Is it 1 million, do you think? Is it 10 million? Is it 100 million? It's not more than 7 billion because there's only only 7 7 billion people on the planet, okay? So how many people do you think are persecuted for their faith right now? Go. Okay, now you've answered that one, okay. How many Christians got killed last year, got martyred, killed last year for their faith? Have a think about that number. How many Christians got killed last year, last year, just last year alone, for their faith? Have a think, turn to one another and and say the answer. And finally, how many Christians do you think are in prison right now for their faith? Have a go. Have a think. Are you using your brains? (laughs) I'm ashamed to say that actually before preparing for this, I didn't know the answers to those questions. And I'm not going to tell you the answers to those questions until a bit later, so you'll have to keep listening. But these are our family. These are our brothers and our sisters around the world. 
and for a huge number of people, having the freedom to come into a building like this and to sing the songs that we've already sung and to worship God and to share their faith is not a reality. Are we feeling their pain? But it's hard, isn't it? Maybe like me, you look at the Middle East and you see Christians who've had to flee from Iraq and from Syria, who've had to flee from their lives. We saw the stories in the news about Christians having to flee from Mosul and having to flee from Nineveh and flee into northern Iraq over the last couple of years. People fleeing for their lives because they own the name of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we ask ourselves, don't we, is God in control? I had the opportunity of going and seeing some of them and meeting with them just last year, and this is a little video that we made. We're here in Bartella, just 20 kilometers away from Mosul. This village used to house 5,000 Christians until it was completely decimated by ISIS in August 2014. Now it's a ghost town. The streets are empty, the shops have been bombed, the houses have collapsed, and nobody lives here. This church, St. George's Church, has also been ransacked. It's burnt, black, completely empty and ruined. We've come here with Father Benham today and with four of the sisters who belong to this church. For some of them, it's the first time that they've come back. We've watched them cry, console with one another, and also pray and worship. It's been very moving. ISIS is uh, born, born the church. I'm very sad. What what happened uh, to to my church? Would you come alongside them and us and pray with us for people who are starting to rebuild their lives here in Bartella and around Mosul? We need your help and your support. Thank you for everything you do. May God bless you. Or maybe you just look at the events closer to home. You look at the arena bombing in Manchester or you look at the events in Barcelona or Nice or the events of over uh, recent months in, in London and you ask yourself this question. Is God in control? Or maybe you've never believed that God is in control anyway and question whether he cares about this world that he's made. Or maybe like many people, you're confused and fearful and anxious? How can we better understand what's going on in our world? How can we better stand with those who are facing persecution even today? Those are the questions we're going to ask as we look at this amazing passage in Acts and chapter 12 this morning. Just some context First of all, the church had been growing. It had been growing like topsy. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord in Acts 11 and 21. Peter had just been responsible for taking the gospel to the Gentiles, what had been narrowed down in Jesus to a faith for the Israelites and then for the Jews had become broadened out and Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ and there were Gentile churches started and beginning to be planted. Paul and Barnabas were about to start off out on their first missionary journey that would be responsible for spreading the gospel to the whole of the world. But there was persecution 
as well. And persecution was increasing. Stephen had become the first martyr just a few chapters earlier. And the Jewish church had been scattered to the four winds and they were afraid to meet in Jerusalem itself. And here was King Herod. Now, this is not the King Herod who was there when Jesus was born. This is King Herod's grandson, Herod Agrippa, who seems even more evil and horrible than the original King Herod. And he was set about killing um, Christians to appease the Jews. There were two million Jews who'd just come to Jerusalem for the Passover The city was buzzing, it was alive, it was politically charged, it was expectant. Two million Jews there celebrating the feast of the Passover and unleavened bread that would go on for four whole days. And in the midst of that, Herod beheads James. This was James, brother of John, Sons of Zebedee. You remember them? Called as the first disciples, fishermen, called away from their boats to follow Jesus. So James becomes the first disciple who's martyred, beheaded, head cut off with a sword by King Herod and his crew. This was Peter's friend. If you read in Matthew 5, you read of James and John being called first, and then Simon and Andrew, Simon who became Peter. These were buddies, friends, disciples together, almost family who'd been on a journey walking with Jesus, loving one another, caring for one another, preaching the gospel, and now one of Peter's best friends is killed is murdered right in their midst. I wonder how you think Peter felt, and I wonder how you think the church was feeling in Jerusalem. You know, Jesus had warned them, hadn't he, that if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And those words of Jesus were probably ringing in their ears, but now it was up close and personal and right in their face. James, one of Peter's best friends, murdered in front of them, killed, executed. You, can't, you could forgive Peter for feeling confused, pained, worried, and anxious. And then Peter himself gets arrested, gets thrown into prison, The only reason he wasn't executed straight away was the Jews didn't allow for um, people to be brought on trial during the festival of Passover and unleavened bread. So King Herod had to wait for four days with Peter thrown into prison before he could bring Peter to trial. And how does the church respond with 24-7 prayer? They get on their knees and they pray and they call out to God for him to rescue Peter. That's their response. I wonder what your response would have been. And it's stretching, fervent, earnest prayer. The word in scripture for earnest is, it's like elastic. It's stretched to its furthest end. And they were stretched in prayer. My wife, Heather, ran a marathon when she was 40, and it was a stretch. For me, it would be an even bigger stretch to run a marathon. But they were stretched like this. It's the same word that is used of Jesus praying in Gethsemane. When the sweat is pouring off his 
brow and it looks like blood. And he's calling out to the father and saying, Father, would you take this cup away from me? Would you not allow me to go through this suffering? And the church is crying out in the same way. There are two leaders, one killed and one in prison. And now they're crying out to God for his mercy and they're stretching themselves in prayer and they're holding an all-night prayer meeting. I wonder when the last time you was that you or I prayed like that. As Tim Keller says, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God. And the church in Acts, in Acts 12, knew exactly what that was to be, thrown upon God for his mercy. As John Stott says, on the one side was the authority of Herod, the power of the sword and the security of the prison. On the other side, the church turned to earnest prayer, which is the only power which the powerless possess. And Peter's stuck in prison. He's stuck there, guarded by four sets of four guards. I don't know what they thought Peter was going to do to try and get out, but they was guarded by four sets of four guards. And it's the night before his trial. I wonder how you'd be feeling the night before your trial. Maybe it'd be a sleepless night for you. But we're told that Peter was fast asleep. There he was, chained to two guards. Chains on his arms. One guard on either side. Chains on his legs. One guard on either side. And he's fast asleep. And then that one little word. Suddenly. An angel of the Lord appears and a bright light shines and the chains fell off and he's free and he wakes up partly and he starts to walk out after he's put on his clothes and his sandals and his cloak and the angel gives him detailed instructions. Put your cloak on and your sandals and your clothes and come on Peter And they walk past two sets of guards. And then the third set of doors, which would have been two set of doors, and then the third set of doors opens automatically. Now, we expect that these days, don't we? You know, you step on a little pad and the door goes bing, okay, in front of you. They didn't have that back then. There were no kind of little motors on the doors with a little pad that went bing and the door opened. This was God intervening and opening a big, massive metal door at the side of the prison that led out onto the street. And Peter follows the angel. And you know, for some of us, maybe today we feel like Peter We feel like we're in a prison and we're chained and our circumstances have just left us in a dreadful place. And maybe like the church back in that day, we're crying out to God for his intervention in our lives and we're crying out for his rescue in our lives. And we serve a God who loves the suddenly who loves the suddenly, who loves to send his angels. And we all need that touch of heaven, don't we? Where do you need that touch of heaven today in your life? Where have you got to the end of yourself where you're in chains and you're um, unable to rescue yourself? And Peter cries out to God and the church cries out to God and suddenly his chains fell off and the doors open. But he thinks he's in the middle of a vision. 
He doesn't realize that this is actually happening. He's, he's kind of, you know, he's sleepwalking along the streets of Jerusalem, wondering what's happened. And then he comes to himself and he realized that it's God that's done this. It's God that's rescued him. And he makes his way to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And he stands at the door knocking. And poor little Rhoda comes to the door, the servant girl, and hears his voice. And instead of letting him in, turns back and goes in, back into the prayer meeting, not believing what she's actually heard. And Peter, who's just escaped out of prison, is probably worried for his life that the Roman guards are going to come and get him again is stood quaking on the doorstep waiting to be let in and Rhoda runs back in and tells him I've seen Peter I've seen Peter oh you must have seen an angel I can't believe that their prayers have been answered Rhoda's so overjoyed that she doesn't even let him in and the church thinks it's Peter's angels not Peter but notice that Peter gives God all of the glory. Peter is released and gives God the glory. Acts 12, 11, then Peter came to himself and said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. And then Peter leaves them and goes to another place. (laughs) Just as soon as he's arrived, he's off and we don't see him again until Acts chapter 15 where he turns up arguing the case for why Gentiles shouldn't have to follow Jewish customs like circumcision. And if you're a Gentile male, you should be forever grateful for Peter. And then we read that back in Jerusalem, there's no small commotion. I wonder what was happening. Oh my goodness, when the guards woke up and found that Peter had gone and they were there with the chains around their, their um, wrists and their legs, but he's gone and the doors are open, there was no small commotion. Did you let him out? Did you let him out? What happened? Did you, did you see a bright light? What happened? And he's gone and he's evaporated. And then because of Roman law, Herod finds out that these uh, God, 16 of them have let one man go and they're executed. And we could easily stop there, and many preachers and, and commentators do, but it's really important to go on to the end of the chapter and see what happens with Herod. You see, Herod is gaining popularity and Herod's power is growing. But he gets to this situation where the people are believing that Herod is a god. And they're saying, this is the voice of a God and not of man. And Luke, as he's writing Acts, wants us to contrast what happens with Peter with what happens with Herod. With Peter, he gave God all the glory for the angel's rescue. And with Herod, it was all about him and all about his power and all about his glory and all about his human strength. And God sends an angel to smite him and to kill him and to rid him off the earth. And then we read in verse 24 this. But the word of God continued to spread and to flourish. So we've got persecution and we've got people in prison and we've got the church praying and we've got Herod, a king who's trying to wipe the church off the face of the earth and yet we serve an unstoppable God with an unstoppable mission. 
an unstoppable God with an unstoppable mission. You see, despite opposition, the word of God is spreading and growing. And Paul and Barnabas are about to go on their first missionary journey and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We serve an unstoppable God with an unstoppable mission. You know, if you've been thinking about how many persecuted Christians there are, I'm going to put you out of your misery right now. There are 212 million persecuted Christians right now in 2017, right around the world. 212 million persecuted Christian. That's according to Open Doors and the the survey that they've done. And 7,000 Christians were killed for their faith in 2016 alone. 7,000 of our brothers and sisters killed for their faith in 2016 alone. But right around the world, the church is growing. The church is growing and the gospel is spreading. I read this article from The Economist, April the 9th, 2016. Listen to it with me. For the past couple of years, China's tens of millions of Christians... Just listen to that a minute. Now remember, the communist regime, when they came into China, kicked all the missionaries out. Yeah? They kicked them out to close down the church. For the past couple of years, China's tens of millions of Christians, most of whom are Protestants, have been watching events in the coastal province of Zhejiang with anxiety. The authorities there have been waging a relentless campaign to remove the large crosses that adorn the roofs of many churches. Hundreds have been taken down to the horror of their congregations. In January, this took a turn for the worse with the arrest of Gu Yesu, the outspoken pastor of the country's largest church, a colossal edifice in the provincial capital, Hangzhou, that seats 5,000 people, about 50% more than St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Many feared that the detention of Mr. Gu, who had been criticizing the removal of crosses, might signal the start of a fiercer nationwide crackdown. To their relief, Mr. Gu was released a few days ago, I wonder if he had an angel arrive and doors open for him. It was also a surprise. Only in February, the pastor of another state-approved church in Jizang had been jailed for 14 years and his wife for 12 years after they protested against the removal of crosses. Mr. Gu may owe his freedom to his church's high profile, or to God, in such a large and important city, rather than to any change in heart of Jizang's authorities. Christians in the province, which has a high concentration of them, are not yet rejoicing. But in the meantime, house churches continue to grow, continues the article. In Beijing, one of the most prominent of them, called Zion Church, is so big that the house church label seems widely inappropriate. When it was founded in 2007, the congregation met in a small office in a commercial building. Since 2013, it's been using an entire floor of it. Some 1,500 people attend services each weekend. Hundreds of others are members of five associated churches scattered across the city. The main venue has a large auditorium with rows of plush blue chairs. Children, why that's in there, I don't know. Children's play areas and numerous meeting rooms of various sizes. It It even has a coffee shop and a gift store. I'm not sure that's a good idea either. And then it finishes. In the end, 
It doesn't matter if there is more persecution or less, says Jin Minigree, Zion's founding pastor. When times are good, there are more followers. And when times are bad, there are different opportunities for the church and the fellowship grows as well. We serve an unstoppable God on an unstoppable mission who's working out his purpose that every knee should bow at the name of Jesus, that every person on this planet should have the opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and then the end will come and Jesus will return and God is working out his sovereign purpose. Despite what we see, the church is growing and God's fingerprints are all over this world, building his church, bringing about his purposes. I want to tell you about Alex. Alex is a really good friend of mine. He grew up in Rwanda. Aged five, uh, his mum and his dad, his grandma and his grandpas, and his uncle and aunties all got killed as part of the genocide. He was left age five, abandoned and orphaned, and put into an orphanage. Age six, he received a shoebox from Operation Christmas Child, and that was the first time that he remembers ever being loved and cared for in his life. Age seven, he went to Nairobi and joined the African Children's Choir and toured with them for several years, singing about God's love and learning about God's love. Age nine, he was adopted into an American family in Minnesota and moved to Minnesota. He learned there that the family did shoeboxes and sent them back to Rwanda. So he started packing them himself and sending those shoeboxes back to Rwanda. And then one day, Operation Christmas Child asked him if he would like to go back and deliver those shoeboxes himself. So he went back to Rwanda and delivered shoeboxes into the orphanage where he'd grown up. Only God can do this kind of stuff. And then a couple of years later, he was invited to go back. And this was a more serious trip because he was invited to go back and to go into the prison where the man was serving a life sentence for killing his parents and his grandparents and his auntie and his uncle. And this is the man in the picture who killed his parents. And he went in And he said to the man, I I forgive you, and I want you to know of Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and Savior. And it's just amazing, isn't it? That someone could go and do that and could forgive a man who killed his parents and could offer forgiveness to him in the name of Jesus Christ and tell him about the Lord Jesus who he serves. And the good news is, the good news is that we serve a loving God and a Savior, Jesus Christ, who chose not to just talk about our suffering, but to enter into our suffering, who is fully God and yet is fully man, who experienced pain, who experienced isolation, who took ultimately that pain on the cross as he spread out his arms and he died for the salvation of the world. But it doesn't stop there. Because three days later, there was another angel sat on the edge of a tomb 
telling Mary that Jesus wasn't there anymore, that he'd risen from the dead, that he'd been resurrected, that he'd come back to life, that he'd proved once and for all that suffering doesn't have to end with suffering, that there's no prison, that there's no pit, that there's no situation where you can't call out to God and know his heavenly touch, his suddenly and your chains can fall off, and you can be released, and God can do his work of rescue and transformation in our lives. We serve an unstoppable God on an unstoppable mission. And Jesus' invitation to us is, will you play your part? Will you stand today alongside Jesus with his children who are suffering because they own his name? I've had the privilege just over the last few months to get to know a guy called Edward. Edward, when he was 21, was studying medicine in Cardiff University. All the best people go to Cardiff University. He was studying medicine in Cardiff University. And he went on a mission trip to India. And he arrived in India, and he's a passionate Christian who wants to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And he met some church planters in in India, and he said to them, how many villages in India can you not go into and plant churches because there's opposition? And the church planters there said, half a million, 500,000. There's 500,000 villages in India where you can't go and plant a church because of opposition. So Edward said to them, what's what's stopping you going and planting those churches then? And they said, well, the problem is, Edward, um, we work 70 hours a week to put food on our table. And we're passionate about planting churches, but we're just trying to survive. And he said, well, how much a month does it cost to put food on your table? And he said, 50 pounds. He said, so you're telling me if I get someone to give you 50 pounds a month, you can go and plant a church? And they went, yeah. So he came back and started, age 23, an organization called 500,000 Churches. You can find it on 500,000churches.com to mobilize church planters in India to plant half a million churches in India over the next decade. Isn't that amazing? Okay. So far, he's planted 5,000 churches since age 23, and he's age 26. Okay. He's planted 5,000 churches in India. That's what happens when we say yes to God and we agree to come alongside him in his unstoppable mission because we serve an unstoppable God who's on an, on, on an unstoppable mission. But how can we respond? How can we respond today? Well, firstly we can decide that we want to stand alongside our persecuted brothers and sisters. And in a little moment, you'll get an opportunity to come up and sign a petition which is on these uh, tables on your left and on your right. It's a petition to the UN and to the UK government that's being run by Open Doors where they're trying to see a million signatures, and they've got nearly half a million so far, a million signatures delivered to the UN and to the UK government by December this year that will call on those governments to protect the rights of Christians who've had to flee their country in Iraq and Syria to go back and to restart and to rebuild again. And they need our support, and they need our encouragement. So would you do that as we sing a song in a few moments? You'll get, have an opportunity to do that. Um, who's got a mobile phone with them today? 
Oh, you get it out? Actually, can you pass mine, Dave? Is that all right? Get your mobile phone out. This is really simple. Okay, it's a really simple way of responding to support the persecuted church. Do you know how to set an alarm? Okay, if, you, if God's calling you to do it, will you set an alarm for every day this week at whatever time you choose it to do and agree that you will stop and pray for the 212 million persecuted Christians around the world? Would you pray some elastic prayers, some stretching prayers that get the sweat going on your brow? to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. It's really easy to do. If you don't know how to do it, then someone will help you, I'm sure. (laughs) Don't ask me. Um, Thirdly, um, Open Doors produce the World Watch List every year. It's a list of the top 100 countries where Christians are persecuted around the world. Um, India's number 15, by the way, if you're wondering about that and and Edward's story. Um, That World Watch List is available. I'd like you to go online and get a copy of that and write to your MP and tell them about it and send the World Watch list to your MP. That's another thing you can do to respond. Or maybe you need to read a bit more. There's some great books out there. God's Smuggler, the story of Brother Andrew. Go and get yourself a copy. It's one of the best sellers in the world. If you haven't read it, go and read it. Or Baroness Cox's book, If Only the Stones Would Cry Out. We can go and watch those. Um, This is the story of Noah. When we sign the petition, we'll be supporting Christians like Noah. Would you just watch that for a moment? Let's close our eyes for a moment. I want you to imagine as you close your eyes what it might look like if we all said yes to standing alongside the persecuted church. I want you to imagine what that might look like. I want you to imagine a world where no Christian facing death or prison would ever have to stand alone. I want you to imagine a world where one day you get to meet an Iranian pastor, or an Iraqi church leader, or a Kyrgyzstani Christian, and you get to look in their eyes and say, we felt your pain, we felt your agony, and we stretched ourselves in prayer for you. I want you to imagine a world where we were stretched like those elastic bands in prayer, where we felt the pain but where we also saw the gospel go forward in leaps and bounds. I want you to imagine a world where people were hungry and they got fed, where they were naked and where they got clothed, where they were thirsty and they got a drink, and where they were in prison and they got visited. 
we serve an unstoppable God on an unstoppable mission who holds this world in his hand, who's working out his purposes, whose church is growing around the world, whose people are suffering, and yet the word of God is growing and thriving, and people are coming to know him. We serve a mighty, sovereign God who is working his purposes out, and we love him, and we praise him, and we lift our eyes to him, and we lift our voices to him. And as we sing, would you come forward if you want to and sign the petitions that are on either side um, of the church, that we might stand with our brothers and sisters in unity and in solidarity with them. Let's sing.